You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by the good folks at the Christian Standard Bible. I just want to say a word real quick about the CSB translation. I've been using it in my preaching and my writing and in my personal devotions for the last couple of years. I really like their uh, balance of good scholarship and faithful translation work also with readability. I want to make you aware of a special new commentary series called the Christian Standard Commentary. This is a set of commentaries that focuses on the theological and exegetical concerns of each biblical book while paying careful attention to balancing rigorous scholarship and practical application. I am always on the hunt for a good set of commentaries to help me with my preaching and with my writings, particularly when I'm writing things like the characters of Christmas or the characters of Easter or other things to really help me illuminate the passage in scripture that I'm studying. This series really helps you understand each biblical book's theology, its place in the broader narrative of scripture, which I think is very important, and its importance for the church today, drawing on the wisdom and skills of dozens of evangelical authors. Uh, It's really a tool for enhancing and supporting the life of the church. If you go to lifeway.com during the month of April, you can get the Christian Standard Commentary Series for 30% off, which is a really incredible deal. So go to lifeway.com and get the Christian Standard Commentary Series. I highly recommend it. And we want to thank them for sponsoring this episode of The Way Home Podcast. Hello and welcome, my friends, to the Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining me today, wherever you're joining me from, whether it's in your car or while you're doing some chores or exercising. I hope that this uh, few minutes together will make that time more enjoyable for you. I'm delighted to have on the show someone who has not been on the Way Home before. Her name is Vanitha Risner. Uh, Vanitha is someone that I would consider... Uh, fits in the category of a modern-day Job. She contracted polio at an early age in her life and struggled as a child to sort of fit in with that, uh, those struggles. Uh, Later on, when she uh, was a mother, she had to bury one of her children because of a doctor's mistake. It's just uh, agonizing tragedy and suffering. And then her marriage imploded. Uh, Her husband left her and she also suffers from post-polio syndrome. So all of things, these things would add up in, in most people's mind to say, I'm gonna turn away from the faith of my youth. I'm gonna turn away from the church, turn away from God. But she has an amazing story about how all of her suffering has actually helped her deal with the life that God has allowed her to live and has the suffering that she has had to endure. And so I think if you're someone who is suffering right now, or you're walking through suffering with someone else. Uh, This will be a conversation that I hope brings you some encouragement and some hope and the ability to kind of look to God as our great shepherd, our great healer, our great physician. So I think you'll want to pull up a chair and listen to this conversation with Vanitha Risner. Thank you for joining me today, Vanita. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Dan. So um, 
I've got your name from uh, a, a mutual friend of ours who said, man, you got to have her on the podcast. And when I started reading about your story, I was like, wow, absolutely true. This, this is a uh, really an incredible story was reading through, through some of it. You, you have a book, a couple books out now, uh, walking through fire and uh, the scars that have shaped me, how God meets us in our suffering uh, endorsed by uh John Piper and Paul David Tripp, Randy Elkhorn, and several others. So I was like, man, I need to have her on. But you have had quite a a story of suffering. I think uh, one of your endorsers called you a, uh, I think Ann Boskamp called you a modern day Job. Um, <laughs> so talk a little bit about what you've gone through. I know you, when you're a child, you uh, had polio and multiple surgeries, unable to walk, and then obviously on into marriage. It's you know, uh, marriage, uh, troubles, and then, uh, so a lot of loss, losing babies to miscarriage, losing children. So maybe kind of walk through your story and, and how the Lord has kind of brought you through some of this. Yeah, I'd love to do that. So I guess my story starts, um, a bunch of years ago in India, I was born in India, um, to Christian parents. And when I was three months old, I contracted polio and polio had pretty much been eradicated by then. Um, And so they weren't as anxious to give the vaccine right away. So in India, they would give the vaccine at six months and I was three months old, but the doctors had never seen polio when I went in with it. And so they gave me cortisone, which lowers your body's fever. My fever was 105, but it also lowers your immune system. And so within a few days, 24 hours, I really couldn't move. And then they think by the time they actually really looked at me again, I was a quadriplegic. And then they realized what I had. And they told my parents, though, you probably need to leave India right away because India is very um, hard if you're disabled. There's no services. And there's sort of this idea that there's a curse on your family. Even for believers, they just feel like this is God's retribution for something And there's not great medical care. So my parents left immediately. My dad was a professor in India and he took a job as a laborer, actually, just installing telephones in London. And so I had my first surgery, Dan, when I was in London, when I was two, and then my family moved to Canada. And that's when I really started having surgeries. I had multiple surgeries every year. When I was seven, I was actually in the hospital for nine months straight. And I lived by myself in the hospital because it was a free hospital. And so my parents weren't allowed to come in except for weekends. So I was on my own and really grew up with this idea that I had to take care of myself and the world was not a a very safe place, Uh, probably because when I was home, life was really hard. And I was bullied a lot in school. I had, uh, even though I'd learned to walk at seven, I've always had a very pronounced limp. And that just triggered lots of people making fun of me and didn't really know what to do with that. And so what I did was I was just angry. I was angry at God, mostly. Um, But on the outside, which is kind of the weird thing, is people thought I was a happy kid because I'm a pleaser and I wanted people to think that. But inside, I had wanted nothing to do with God. And Then when I was in high school, I got involved in FCA, which is Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go because I was a Christian or an athlete, but all the cute guys in my high school went. So I thought, I want to be cute guys. So I went there. And then one of my friends who would sit in the back and talk about guys with me came home one day and said, God is real. You need to consider this. And that terrified me. 
But I went home, uh, actually, after a while of her talking about it, and just said, God, if you're real, show me. And then nothing happened. The next day I got up and I thought, you know what, maybe I should start reading, looking at the Bible, which is, I did this so arrogantly. I'm ashamed to admit it really nowadays, but um, I opened the Bible. I was like, God, show me something. Like, why did this happen? Why did you do all of this to me? And so I don't recommend this kind of arrogance towards God, but God really even understands that. And I flipped open the Bible to Leviticus and started reading it. And there's nothing really there for me at that point. And then just said, like, why? And I flipped open to John 9 and started reading. And it was the passage where Jesus um, and the disciples see a blind man. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And they say it was not that, uh, Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life. And that was the moment, Dan. I felt like God was speaking to me. And he was answering my question. And that was it. I knelt down by the side of my bed and committed my life to Christ and really thought that was all my suffering. I thought, okay, we all have one big hard thing and this was mine. And I honestly remember thinking about nobody, nobody else has dealt with their suffering. I have. So my life is going to be this straight line, amazing trajectory and they may deal with problems, but not me. And that was kind of my theology and it worked for a lot of years but then it didn't work. You know, I, I do think a lot of people in the West, particularly kind of have that as an assumption. Most of us would say, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Yeah. We don't believe in this, but it's sort of built into our psyche here. Those of us that live in relative freedom and prosperity, of course, there are obviously, um, pockets of despair in even the wealthiest countries like the United States and other places around the world. But for the most part, many of us do live pretty well. And I think that's kind of a built-in assumption that if I make the, you know, if I, if I choose to follow Christ, if I make the right decisions, yeah, I'll face a little bit of social scorn maybe for being a Christian. And increasingly, you know, I think it's becoming less and less popular to be a serious follower of Jesus, it, it's cutting against more of the culture. But I think built in is, is the idea that things are going to be good. Things are going to mm-hmm. get better. Uh, yeah. God's just kind of unending blessing. Um, and, you know, I've been a Christian since I was four. I'm 42. And I, I know that that's not true, but I still have to fight that. So then when bad things come or hard things come, we're almost like, whoa, yeah. I didn't sign up for this. What, what, what is this? What's going yeah. on here? So explain kind of how the Lord is working on that in your life as well, that you're thinking, I made the choice. I followed Christ. You know, what's going on here? Yeah. So yeah, that was really my theology was, you know, once you commit to Christ, it's going to be good. There might be hard things, but overall God is going to give you everything that you need. And then I hit 30 and I had uh, a miscarriage and that may not seem like a big deal to everyone. Miscarriages are really hard. And I was on a business trip, came back and realized like this life that I thought was going to be just so easy and straightforward is not going to be that way. And, and in those years from the time I was 16 to the time I was 30, I had this unprecedented kind of success in my life. So this theology I had built was working really well. I mean, I 
went to school at University of Virginia. I lived in Boston on my own, which I never thought I'd do. I went to grad school at Stanford, met my husband. Um, so like everything I did was exactly the way I wanted it to be. And so then when that one thing happened, I felt like, wait, God, like how, how is this happening? And then just a series of really hard things started. Um, my husband had an affair. We worked through that. But just when I was kind of recovering from that, got pregnant, and, and then I had two more miscarriages, then got pregnant with a son who we learned had a hypoplastic left heart. And so we had to, um, we went to Michigan for his surgery. He had surgery at birth. The surgery went great, which was wonderful. So we were at home from Michigan. Everybody thought the situation looked perfect. And then we took him into our doctor for a checkup. And our regular doctor wasn't there. There was a substitute who I don't think was used to dealing with babies. And he said, oh, he looks great. He's on the growth chart. He's perfect. Let's just not um, renew all of his medications. Because we were doing medicine for him like every three hours around the clock, middle of the night, all of that. And he said, he just doesn't need that. He's, he's doing so well. And so he took them all off. He took him off all the medicine. And uh, I remember calling a high school friend of mine who's a pediatric cardiologist that night just to tell him how great things were going. And he said to me, why, why did he do that? He doesn't understand this condition. And I remember this sort of pit in my stomach starting, tried to get hold of the doctor and in retrospect should have gone to the ER, but the doctor wasn't there. It was Friday evening. And I thought, well, I'll wait. And John said it was okay to wait. But then that Sunday night, Paul screamed in the middle of the night and went limp. And, you know, Dave went with him in the ambulance. And I called John. And I remember John just saying, I'm so sorry. He didn't know what had happened. He just said, I'm so sorry. And I hung up the phone and I got on my knees and I begged God, like I've never begged for anything. Just please save him please, 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 I'll do anything. And that was this sort of bargaining with God. I mean, I still remember saying, I'll teach a Bible study every day. I'll have five quiet times. Like I'll do whatever you ask me mm. to do. Just do this for me. And then I found out, you know, later that night that he died. And, mm. and that was sort of all of this theology that I'd sort of built up, just kind of came crashing down on me. Like, okay, wh why, why did you take my son? I was faithful to you. And at his funeral, I was able to say, God doesn't make a mistake. God is in this. But three weeks later, I wanted to pull every word back. I was distant from God. I was angry. I didn't know why this happened or how this happened. And I didn't want anything to do with God anymore because I thought, I don't want anything to do with a God who you're begging for your child's life. And God takes him. Like that just didn't make sense to me. And so I went a long time and I really don't even know how long because it was just like days folded into weeks, folded into months. And I just was kind of living numbed out, didn't want anything to do with anything. Um, and then I remember just feeling so down. I just, I was driving and almost mindlessly driving. And I remember just saying, God, I can't do this. Like, show me something, show me yourself. And I pushed in this worship CD or tape. It was actually a cassette tape back then. And all of a sudden God's presence filled my car in a way that in my life, it has never been like that 
since, but it was probably, I don't even know how long it was. Time kind of stood still, but I sensed that God was in my car and there was nothing else in this whole world that mattered. I remember turning off the CD tape and just saying, okay, wow, this feels like heaven. Like there was this no thought of anything else besides God. And that changed me. From that moment on, I realized, wow, this is, the Christian life is more than just blessing and getting these good things to happen because I do the right stuff. There is this experience with God, this encounter with Jesus that is better than anything he could give us. And so that was the moment for me where I realized Jesus was enough for anything. And it was soon afterwards that I got kind of familiar with John Piper's work. And that really helped me sort of put some framework around this experience of God in the midst of darkness that that, that can happen. And it's not because I have done something wrong that I got to that place, but because God could be glorified and God could use it. And it was sort of back to that John 9 passage that I didn't fully understand when it had changed me. I knew that God had a purpose to my suffering, but I don't think I saw that God would have a purpose to all my suffering. So that was this huge turning point where I really was all in, in my faith without this expectation that God owed me anything. So that, that was great. I mean, to this day, that's a day I remember, but then, um, so six years after that, Though I found out that I had post-polio syndrome, and I don't know if you are familiar with that, Dan, but it's a condition where you get polio and you're basically your motor neurons die. And I was a quadriplegic then, but then I sprout, my body just started regaining some strength after surgeries and exercise. And they discovered that those were actually secondary motor neurons. They weren't the primary ones that had died. And these secondary ones had a limited life. So when I found out I was had post-polio, they basically said, you have a, a limited amount of strength and energy. And once it's gone, you will be a quadriplegic again. Wow. And that was stunningly difficult news. I mean, I was an artist. I used to walk to, I mean, I was like, lived a pretty normal life. And I had just been dealing with a lot of pain. And then they just said, I said, what do I do if I, what happens if I don't cut back? I mean, they said like, don't do even simple stuff for yourself. I mean, they were telling me I had to get an electric toothbrush because I couldn't use a manual one. Mm. And they, I said, what happens if I don't do all of these things? And they said, in 10 years, you won't be feeding yourself. And I, I had young kids then I was in my thirties and it was like, okay, all right, I got to get a handle on this. And so that, that's when I started reading Johnny Erickson Tata and just saying, okay, God, if I'm going to be a quadriplegic, like show me how to do that. Like that's horrifying to me, but there are people that live with that with joy. So teach me through them. And so that was this completely different journey for me and, and was different in that, you know, I'm an Enneagram too, if you're into that. I mean, I'm a helper. I, that's a huge part of my life. And for a two, for a helper to be eventually a quadriplegic and not be able to serve. I mean, they said, don't make your own meals. Don't take meals for other people. Don't, don't serve because that's all the energy you have. And so it was kind of redefining my identity at that point. Just, you know, who am I? And 
that was a horribly hard thing, but that was the best thing for me because I, my identity was so built in what other people thought of me by the way I served them. And it couldn't be, it had to be built on Christ. And so that was a gift, even though it didn't feel like a gift. And I don't think suffering ever feels like a gift. It, it feels like a gift wrapped in black. You know, it's the worst gift. And yet God knows it's something really good inside that. So just kind of dealing with that all happened. And then six years later, my, um, my husband came home and told me he was leaving for someone else. So he moved wow. out of state. And I had two adolescent daughters to raise who were very angry and I was homeschooling them at the time and life pretty much collapsed for me at that point, just dealing with my own weakness. Neither of them were old enough to drive. I mean, my older one was 13, younger one was nine and just, um, just didn't know how to process life. And really, I remember telling my pastor, I think God hates me because there was kind of like, I felt like I was able to deal with some of the other suffering. And then I was kind of at the point of God cannot love me if he's going to let all of this happen. Right. It, it was horrifying, but it was the time when I had to lean into God because there was nothing else. Like I couldn't walk away because there was nothing to walk towards kind of like Peter says, you know, where can we go? Who yeah. else has the words of life? And it literally was, where can I go? We don't so like I this, would, but where can we go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it, um, I would get up every morning, Dan, and just open the Bible and say, this is all I've got. Like, you've got to meet me. And God did in unbelievable ways. Like the Bible, I love the Bible now. And it's because of that time. It was because God would feed me every day. Like I was, you know, I like Bible reading plans. I'd go through a Bible reading plan and every day there would be something brand new that I'd never seen. And I was like, okay, wow, God can actually speak life into me. And my favorite verse from that time that I would say more times than I can count is Psalm 119.25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. And God did. Like I I remember distinctly feeling like I can't deal with this. I mean, dealing with issues with my ex-husband, rebellion on my kids' part, just my body failing. How am I going to do that? Do I quit piano lessons? I mean, it was basic questions. Like I can't drive them everywhere. And my husband would drive them. And like, do they, do they just stay home? Like, what do I do? And God would answer those with a text from a friend saying, Hey, I want to help you like physically, like I'm available at the times that your kids need to do stuff. So it was like, God just answered me and I would just put it all out there before him. And there were miraculous answers all the time because I needed it. I, I couldn't figure it out. And so that time was the sweetest time of my life. My, those three years from when my ex-husband left to when we got divorced were so hard. I was in limbo trying to figure out what are we going to do here? And yet God knew I needed him. And that's, he showed up in like the brightest glory for me. Um, and then got divorced uh, in, uh, three years later after he left. And then um, three years after that, uh, remarried an amazing guy named Joel. So six years after he had left. And it was neat because Joel 225 says, I will restore the years the locust has eaten. And that's what Joel did. I mean, he rewrote all of the hard things that had happened. And some of the issues I've had 
being disabled and being bullied, I just kind of bring all that, brought all that back to the present. And I, I think a lot of us do that, like the baggage, the things that we tell ourselves that we sort of feel like we've moved past. Mm-hmm. When something hard happens, they all come tumbling back. And for me, it was, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're different. Nobody really wants you. And for my husband, like right when he proposed, I said, I don't want to walk up the aisle. I hate the way I walk. I hate watching the way I walk. And it just reminds me that I'm different. And he just said to me, I love the way you walk. And I loved it from the beginning. And that felt like Christ, like, I love the way you walk, you know? And so that, that was just this perfect way that God, God redeemed all of that part. before we return to our conversation, can I tell you about a great new podcast that uh, I've been listening to? It's called Compelled. And these folks were so kind to sponsor this episode of The Way Home. What they do is they find Christians with really unique stories about how God has shaped their lives. And one really great story that they did is with a lady by the name of Hannah Overton, a homeschooling mother of five who was falsely accused of murder and sentenced to life in prison. If you can Uh, believe that. Uh, Instead of growing bitter in her circumstances, uh, she chose to share the gospel with her fellow inmates. Uh, You'll want to hear this entire story, Hannah's story, and many more like it, by searching for Compelled uh, in your favorite podcast app or by visiting compelledpodcast.com. We want to thank the kind folks at Compelled for sponsoring this episode of The Way Home. I'm just sitting here listening to your story and I'm thinking, you know, if most of us, if we had one of these things happen to us, it would be devastating, much less you've had all of them happen to you. And so when, you know, Ann Boskamp says that you're feel like a modern day Job, she, it, it's really true. And, you know, one of the things I'm, I want to ask you too, is when I read the scriptures about people who suffered it seems to me that the Bible allows for us to be mad at God for a season, if that makes sense. That mm-hmm. like you really did not understand why God was allowing this, but your your emotion was directed toward God because you understand he's the one that allows this. That mm-hmm. makes sense. So when you yeah. read like the Psalms, for instance, David is pretty upset or Habakkuk or even Job. Describe that kind of process where you're you're just like you know, especially when you, when you lost your child, you're just kind of raw with emotion and anger toward God. And, and, and I'm sure since that moment, you've talked to people who are in similarly difficult situations. And how do you walk people through that? What should they be saying to themselves? Because I think there's a part of us that wants things to just sort of resolve quickly, mm-hmm. us to get over things quickly. Um, and that may not necessarily be good, right? Right. I think lament is the most incredible gift that God gives us in our suffering. Like he invites us to tell him how we feel. I mean, and he's given us the Psalms as the prayer book of the church to say, this is what it looks like. It looks like raw honesty. It looks like not holding back. It looks like telling me everything. And just like in real relationships with, with our spouses or our friends, 
if we got mad and walked away, we would lose the relationship. Like it's okay to be in there saying, this is what you did to hurt me and talking it through. Like that brings us closer. And that's exactly the way it was with God. Like being willing to say, I can't believe you let this happen. And, and just being honest and raw. And if people think there's no place for that, just open up Lamentations 3. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing that Jeremiah says to God. And yet God has it in the scripture. And that was so healing for me, Dan, because I think before I had been through all of that, I didn't know you could say that to God. But I was just pouring through the Bible, like, where can I even relate to this stuff? Or who's related to this? And just finding that, yeah, people feel like they're drowning. And where is God in this? And yet God tenderly meets them. And the way, the beautiful thing is, is if we start with hallelujah, it's all good. I think we stay in this very plastic place from God. Like we can mouth those words, but I think if that kind of the hard hallelujah from which comes out of lament, because lament will turn into that because that is who God is. Like we will recognize who God is in the midst of that as he comes to us and we'll want to praise him. And that praise is so much deeper than the it's all good I'm blessed, which, you know, those are fine responses, but I think when you don't feel that way, Mm -hmm. one, they separate us from God because we feel like hypocrites to ourselves. And two, I think they don't show people who Jesus is, believers or unbelievers. I mean, unbelievers are like, why are they not even responding like human beings? And I think believers then feel judged if they cry or if things are hard or they wonder where God is. So I think we have a responsibility to be honest. What, what were the most helpful responses of people around you in the midst of your suffering? And obviously each one of these trials is, is different in shape and scope and impact and the way it hits you. You know, losing a child is different than a spouse. Walking out is different than a medical thing, but they're all a form of hardship and suffering and kind of, but when people, like you mentioned that person who just said, hey, can I help you? Mm-hmm. What, what were some of the most helpful responses to people around you? Because quite often we don't know what to say to be close and near to someone who's suffering. Yeah, um, lots of things. I would say the first thing is just be there, like just showing up. I mean, and in these days of COVID, that's pretty hard for people. But I think just showing up, I had friends that were just like, hey, you don't need to talk to me, but I'm just going to come clean your kitchen, Mm. you know? And if people just do that, that's really helpful. And you can say, no, don't come. But if if somebody just says, hey, I'm going to just drop by or I'm going to the grocery store, what can I get you? Versus if you ever need anything, call. I mean, that's pretty much a recipe for I'm nobody's going to call on that invitation. So I think specific offers are really helpful. Like I love to do laundry. I love to fold laundry. Can I do that on Thursday? Like I can answer that and we can decide if Thursday's not a good day, but I'm not going to call somebody to fold my laundry unless they offer. So I think whatever you can do, whether it's even very small, like I can take care of the Karen bridge. I mean, I know people who've said that, you know, and that's really helpful. I can take care of just something little. I don't need to be there to do that. That's the most helpful, I think. And 
I think what is not helpful is comparing people to other people's suffering. Like, oh, I have a friend and they went through that and, you know, they were just amazing. Would you want to meet them? It's like, no, I actually don't want to meet them. Somebody that is going through something hard, I don't think wants to be compared to somebody who everybody thinks did it beautifully. Comparing suffering. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wonder too, we need to give people permission to lament. Yeah. And not try to sew it up and wrap it up quickly. Yeah. And I know for myself, when I'm trying to comfort a family member or someone, there's a sense in me that wants to rush the process along. Yeah. Or even with my own stuff that, you know, you want to kind of bury it or just rush through it. And to give people permission to to be to be angry, to be upset, to lament. Like, how yeah. can we do that? Oh, I think, I think just really encouraging people to do that. And I've actually lamented um, with friends. I have a close friend with ALS and, you know, what do you say within the face of something that hard? And so the women in our small group read through Psalm 142 with her and lamented. And, you know, just, we read a line from the Psalm and just say, let's all just corporately talk about what is horrible about this situation. And I think people want to hear that other people are crying with them and, and, and care about this. And so I think that is a great invitation to people. And um, there's a, a song, Ellie Holcomb just released it. And it, it does have, it was in conjunction with my memoir, but it was, it's about lament. The whole, the song starts with, you're going to want to rush tr- through this. You're going to want to try to move on. People will praise you for being resilient but the bravest thing is actually to sit in your suffering and be honest and let God meet you in that. And I think Chris, we want to shortchange that for ourselves and for other people. We want to see them bounce back and we want our words to be the magic for them. I do. I want to walk into somebody's crying house and say the exact words that they need to go, you know what? I feel so much better. But we can't do that. Jesus does that. We just sit. And we pray and we lament and we cry. And I think the most dangerous thing is to pound people over the head with, you got to feel better. There's a purpose. And I believe there's a purpose to suffering. But Romans 8.28 is the most abused scripture for people Mm -hmm. who are suffering. I can say it to myself, but I don't want somebody else to come in at my son's funeral, which somebody did say to me, you know, this is the for the best. Gosh. All things are going to work for good. And I was like, I believe well, that, but not right now. What's so what's so bad about that is we do believe Romans 8, 28, but that's only part of the story the Bible tells about suffering, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of Jesus, you know, standing over his friend Lazarus and the Bible saying he wept, but also that he was angry inside. Yeah. Like he was mad at the at what sin, the curse of sin, the brokenness of the world, you know, death being the work of the enemy, mad yeah. that at what it brought about. And I think sometimes we don't allow ourselves to actually feel those emotions that are right. That yeah. the world is not as it should be. And these aspects of suffering, yes, God is going to use it to shape our character. Yes, we can trust a good God, but these are still bad things, right? I, like when yeah. Joseph tells his brothers, this is years later when he had forgiven them and gotten over and, and gotten through it. 
what you intended for evil, God meant for good. He, he called it out and said, what you did was evil. Like yeah. he's not brushing past the enormity of, of the pain and the hurt. And I just think we too often want to kind of dismiss that. It does seem that what anchored you was good theology. Mm-hmm. That when I hear what you're saying, that you read Johnny Erickson Tata and you read John Piper. And how did those writers and those people minister to you? They probably, they didn't know you at the time, probably. Right. And yet had written about their own sufferings and their own journey. How did that minister to you? And why did you need good theology in in those moments? Well, it ministered to me greatly, just hearing just what God did in their lives. I mean, I I still remember the first John Piper sermon I heard and the Johnny Erickson Tata book I read, When God Weeps. And just putting flesh on it for me, it wasn't dry theology. Both of them were like, this is what God has shown me. And um, through my own suffering and John Piper just beautifully wove it in with the sovereignty of God and yet the, the comfort and the tenderness of God. And I just feel like that gave me a real handle on where things fit in, whereas I feel like I didn't have one before. And so suffering didn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing other people walk through it well and, and really draw out what they've learned really helped me have a framework. And I think we need a framework or we go in crazy directions. And um, it was interesting because this morning I was just praying and in my quiet time, I was reading John 16. And that was even a little framework for me, which I'd never really noticed. But Jesus says, you know, suffering, he says to the disciples, you know, you will have sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he mentions it being like a woman in labor. And I just thought, oh my gosh, that is a picture of suffering in this life. Like it's the worst pain. I mean, I actually had C-sections, but friends I've known who've gone through it, it's like, there's nothing like it. It's agonizing and mind numbing pain. And nobody would say, oh, forget about it. It's fine. Something good is happening. We all know something amazing is happening. You're going to have a baby, but people know that's so painful. You don't brush off the pain and say, oh, you don't, you don't need anything right now. Something good is happening. And I think that's what we do when we don't let people lament. Like, whereas if somebody's crying out when they're having a baby, we want to be there. We want to help them. We want to just talk to them, even though we can't change it. We don't look at them unempathetically and not let them experience what they're going through. And I I just, when I read that this morning, I thought that is just a mini picture of how do we look at suffering? We want people with us, you know, women want their husbands in there with them to comfort them, to be with them. And so we want the presence of Jesus. And we do know there's a great purpose, which is far greater than any suffering we have, but we can't see it now. That's that's such a good word. Well, Vanitha, you, God has given you a story that I know is being used to encourage people in the midst of their own suffering. It's given you a platform, a wonderful writing gift and your work is showing up in all these places. And um, I want to encourage people to get her books, to get um, uh, Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption, which is available from Tyndale, forward by Ann Voskamp, a really good book. It has discussion guides and Bible studies and everything. So uh, we will have links to that in our show notes page. Uh, and then also uh, you have another book that came out uh, earlier as well, 
that I want to encourage folks to get called The Scars That Have Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Our Suffering for at the forward by Johnny uh, Erickson Tata. So I want to encourage folks to get those books. Uh, Vanitha, before we go, if you can give one word, and I'm thinking to someone who's listening to this in their car or maybe taking a walk around the neighborhood or whatever, who is right now enduring a very difficult situation. Maybe they just got medical news they did not want to hear. Maybe they have a spouse who is walking out on them or their marriage is in crisis, or maybe uh, they're suffering loss of someone they love, whether it's a child or a family member. Can you speak to them right now? If you know, as if you were sitting across the table from them. Yeah. I would say first, I'm so sorry. Jesus weeps with you. This is hard and hang on. It's, this isn't, the story's not over yet believe that God is writing a good story with your life. And this, this may change tomorrow. This may take a long time, but God is going to redeem this in ways that you will be amazed at. And until you see that God will walk with you every second of it. So don't let go of him. Tell him everything that's on your heart and trust that he cares He weeps with you and he's listening to you and he will never let you go. That's such a good encouragement and uh, and a hope for people who who suffer. Well, Vanitha, thank you for joining me today. And I'm really grateful for the ministry that God has given you. And uh, I'm praying that others will, will hear and listen. Thank you. This was great. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with daniel darling for more information you can visit danieldarling.com if you do like this podcast we encourage you to subscribe on itunes or your favorite podcast catcher we also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast you can follow me at at dan darling on twitter or go to my facebook page facebook.com slash daniel m darling I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters.